Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Seattle Knot, a Plowline podcast with your host, Jeremy Tunnell. I am, it's June, and it is raining in the Pacific Northwest, and it has been raining, and it seems like it is probably going to rain into the foreseeable future. Now, I could be upset about that, and I've certainly spent summers where I was looking forward to that warm summer, but that La Nina just kind of pushed up and hung up into the, off the Pacific coast and pushing the jet stream over us, pulling up all that moisture, and the next thing you know, we have a wet summer. It happens. Doesn't happen every summer, but when it does, you usually don't get over 80 degrees Fahrenheit for more than, I don't know, one or two days in the summertime. It's usually hovering in the high 60s to the low 70s. It's fairly damp. There's a lot of clouds. It's kind of a bummer. But I could be in Arizona or Texas right now where it's over 100 degrees and it's going to be for the foreseeable future. And if you don't, if your air conditioner is uh, not super great or you have to be out of air conditioning for any sort of time, it's just plain miserable. So I would call that privilege, which is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this idea of privilege and how I've learned to perceive it. I turned 50 just last week. My wife threw an incredible party. And I had the privilege of having 40 or 50 of my friends and family around me on this day that I'd been thinking about quite a bit for the past year. Um, I spent a lot of time in this past year uh, doing counseling. I got back into, into uh, with a counselor back in August, probably July, and saw him once a month, twice a month, um, still seeing him. Um, with my wife's encouragement, I started Pilates. And back in August, I've done over 100 courses, uh, 100 classes thus far. My body's completely um, changed. It's healing. Uh, I had major lower back problems for quite a long time, a back injury that would not heal. And I'm a different person. And I did all this because I, I, I wanted to think about, when I started, I was like, well, let me, let me think about... Uh, let me think about what it's going to be to be 50. How do I enter into 50 being my best self? And then I started to realize somewhere around January, February, wait a minute. This isn't about hitting some mark on 50 and then being like, yep, I did it. I, I went to the counseling and I went to the Pilates. I'm good. I'm a, I'm a new, uh, I'm just going to go back to, you know, being you know, doing the behaviors or the practices that I was previous because it's easier. I started to realize that it's about what happens after 50. What happens beyond it? Well, my ability to be able to do those things is a privilege. My access to healthcare that provides counseling is a privilege. My access to, uh, to a Pilates studio is a privilege. My access to a group of friends that I, 
and family, man, you know, the friends that I've cultivated since college and beyond. There were people there that I've known for a year. There were people there that I've known for decades. There were people there that I knew all my life. My brother came, which was awesome and incredible, incredible honor. We share the same day as our birthday, and we haven't celebrated a birthday together since we were teenagers, maybe. And even then, neither one of us at that point were very interested in celebrating our birthday with each other. We'd been doing it all of our lives. So to have my brother come to my 50th was an honor and a privilege. One of the things that it kind of made me start thinking about was where do where does my perspective um, on what I see as a privilege in my life come from? And just this morning, I had a revelation, an epiphany. I'm driving in the car and I was thinking about some of the behaviors that I easily invest in. You know, like it's not a struggle to get me to do. Um, building a massive garden space, a chicken coop, uh, ensuring that, you know, that uh, our pantry is stocked. Uh, you know, these are our jobs that I take on and I take on without anybody having to ask me to or having to be motivated because the motivations within me. And I started to realize and I chuckled at the idea that, oh, I'm really good at self-preservation. And then I stopped laughing because I realized I'm really good at self-preservation. Like, this is something that I have intuitively gut learned that's been wired into me at a young age. And because I've spent so much time in counseling and because I've spent so much time in self-reflection, I was easily, it was easy for me to make the connection of, holy shit, I... I'm so good at self-preservation because I had to learn self-preservation from the age of five. My parents divorced at the age of five. It was an ugly divorce. My father remarried and moved to Alaska. My mother remained in the foothill town where I was born and she was born. And my grandfather was born. My sister was born and my aunts and uncles were all born. And so... My parents were split five hours apart. And I'd spend the next 14 months living with my mother as my father reestablished himself and his life and uh, without seeing him. And I kind of went crazy, you know, like I, I had a really hard time with that as a, as a, as a young boy. Uh, I remember in particular seeing some photos that my grandmother had snapped as if she was capturing the image of a feral cat that crossed her yard barefoot the black the soles of my feet were black as, as as the as the asphalt that i was walking on on a constant basis cut off jean shorts frayed on the end no shirt maybe a t-shirt you know maybe a muscle tee but usually no shirt and a bow and arrow and i'd roam the streets of this small gold rush town wreaking havoc and to a large degree it was too much for my mother to kind of bear like I was a lot I was this young boy who um, had an older sister four and a half years older and, but my father was gone just disappeared overnight boom gone and for a five-year-old that was a lot to take so that summer, um, my father asked me to come up and I did for a couple of months to Alaska and, you know, became oriented with, uh, with this family dynamic that, that had emerged up there. And, uh, I went back down to California to start my second grade year for the second time over again. And my mother in that summer had kind of realized you need to be with your father. He can provide you something that I can't. And although that's true, my father can provide me something that she couldn't. My mother, I was now being put into a situation where, as I lived with my father, 
although I was getting what my father could give me, I was now denied what my mother could give me because I didn't live with her. And so what I came to kind of realize and understand as I've thought about it is that because my wife is the contrast to this, you know, she uh, grew up six brothers and sisters, including herself. Uh, Mom and dad stayed married until her father passed away well into my wife's adulthood. They worked hard at a marriage and to stay in love with each other and to stay in relationship with each other and to build this family dynamic with these children and the community they were a part of. And in doing so, what they had done is they created a bubble around my wife and those kids. A bubble in which those kids didn't have to worry about certain things. They didn't have to worry about their own emotional, social, and psychological well-being. They didn't have to learn how to self-cope in the midst of these things because that bubble provided a cushion And because that cushion was there, her parents had the ability to be able to pour lessons into their life, for good or bad. You know, all parents are dysfunctional. It's the way it is. All all family dynamics have dysfunction. But that bubble provided an opportunity to give some cushion. And the intactness of that family unit gave some cushion. I did not have that. And although my stepmom and who was an excellent mom to me she is my mom i call her mom i have two mothers i am privileged in that It, it it is also not that dynamic and and so without that bubble being there and with me constantly traveling between alaska and california by myself and and of course my parents were now on two different paths so as my father you know, dove back into his evangelical Southern Baptist Christianity background. And my mother dove into her, um, you know, uh, esoteric new age background, you know, um, grounding for her life. I was, they were diverging into two different directions. So every time I would go from one to the other, I had to remake me. And um, in order to fit the setting and in order to work with them. So at a very young age, I, I, I learned these, these set of skills that allowed me to self-preserve. And at their worst, those skills are extraordinarily self-centered and, um, and selfish. Because uh, in circumstances in which life around me is difficult and hard. For instance, uh, I started a business a number of years ago. I hated it. Um, I hated going to work. I hated doing what I was doing. And, uh, and so I was, I put myself into this place where self-preservation became, um, urgent. And, uh, because the only thing I felt like I could self-preserve was me I was a tyrant. I was terrible. I was awful around the house. You know, my wife, um, my wife couldn't stand me. We had a very, very difficult number of years there. But on the other end of things, that self-preservation, when I can create that safety bubble around me that, that, you know, for myself where my needs are met and, and, um, I'm not chasing after rent or, you know, paying the bills or whatever the case might be. I'm, I, I find that this uh, desire for self-preservation expands out into my family and uh, my friends. And, and I am suddenly in this place where I want to be able to provide to them um, this bubble too. So what I was left with was this perspective that my family of origin, the, the, fam- the dynamic in which I grew up, Uh, no matter how whole or how broken it was or wasn't, provided a set of lenses in which I see the world. It's a foundational element. It's not the only element, but it's a foundational element into my perspective of the world. And that perspective determines the amount or the type uh, or the areas in which I exhibit bias, uh, where I see privilege, and, um, and where I see uh, harm 
and what I what I've begun to see is that is that these um, these lenses are stacked on top of each other based off of this form of indoctrination and learning that I that I that I have gleaned from living in the world. The primary lens is that family of origin, right? It's uh, it's it's whatever that dynamic was. It provides a certain lens in which I see the world. But then on top of that, you, I would put my broader family, right? My grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my, my nieces and nephews and you know cousins and so on and so forth. Then I would put my friends, so another lens. So as I, as I move up this lens, this tree of perspective, it's, a, it's lenses stacked on top of lenses that get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So just like a telescope, uh, you know, the small lens is, uh, is, is um, over by where your eye is looking and the big lens is out there on the end and it magnifies. Well, it's, this is doing the same thing, right? It, it, it is magnifying my perspective. So beyond my friends would be my interactions with institutions, well, interactions within my community, Right. So what, what, what was I involved in? Was I involved in church? Was I, you know, did I go to school? Um, you know, and these, and these relationships with institutions within my community. And then beyond that would be the, you know, really kind of the area, the region in which I was born and raised. So was I born in the South? Was I born in, um, in, the, in the Northwest? Was I born on an island? Was I born in the tropics? Was there, um, you know, was there trade winds that blew uh, over every day, or was there a midnight sun that never set in June, like like it does in the north? So, um, all the that that region plays a part into who I am, and then I would say that uh, it would be the culture at large. So, I'm an American, and so I live in an American uh, perspective. And then beyond that would be the greater culture, which I would call Western civilization. So in that perspective, what I mean is I certainly do live in America, but America is a Western civilized culture, just like New Zealand, just like Australia, just like most of Europe, just like Canada, kind of just like Latin America for many respects. Um, and so, And so it's indoctrinated into this colonized westernized culture perspective and then beyond that would be humanity right like the perspective between um between my experience and the experience of a of my dog or or a tree and and that varies right for some of us we don't see them as is even having souls whereas i see them as being living breathing sentient beings um but still we see a separation a boundary level between us and them which could be the final one, um, which would be no boundary. But all of these lenses provide a perspective. And so when I'm looking at the privilege I live in and breathe in, you know, this, this, this privilege of, of um, being in a relationship with somebody who would, would put together and put time and resources into bringing people together for a celebration for my birthday the way my wife did. Uh, that's a privilege. And it's one that I've invested in. But that's a privilege. Or the privilege of having a stable home. Or the privilege of having a business that we're good at and that works for us. The privilege of friends the privilege of good, na good neighbors that we interact with and we have community with. These, these are all privileges that are rooted in my immediate experience, right? But when I start looking at, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that these lenses also do is that they, that they don't just provide uh, um, focus, on something, they also um, blur out other things. There are whole areas in which I don't realize that I where my privilege lies, simply because I 
take any one of those striations. So let's take uh, two people, any one of those lenses. So let's take two people that were born in the same place I was at the same time I was that I grew up with that I knew we share the same phenotype that is, um, you know, we, we look the same, we're white. Um, and we, um, and, uh, and we, and we grew up together. Okay. Well, really where the differences start is family of origin, broader family. And then that's about it, right? Like we're in the same circle of friends to some degree, um, that might change as we get older, but we had similar ex- uh, relationships with institutions. We, um, we're, we grew up in the same kind of region. So we have knowledge there. We are, are part of the same, um, cultural dynamic as far as being an American. We're the same cultural dynamic as far as Western civilization. But if I take two people that are, um, that one was born on an island and one was um, born, um, you know, raised in Alaska, for instance, and one comes from a, um, an, uh, a family of origin and a background um, where they're Filipino, um, Chinese, Spanish, Polynesian, like my wife, and where they are of European descent, like myself, then those differences start immediate family of origins, totally different. And those lenses go, um, you know, are kind of a little flipped, right? Uh, we don't, you know, we, um, we start to have some shared experience when it comes to nationality and a greater, larger culture, but that's really where those things kind of, kind of start. And so, uh, and so our experiences in life are totally different, which means that the, not just the things we're able to see and focus on are, are different, but also the things that we can't see are different. And when we apply this to historical perspectives, right? So when we get farther up uh, in the hierarchy, as far as those lenses are concerned, where we're talking about nationality and culture those are kind of beyond human timelines for instance my family of origin my uh my my larger family my friends even to the large degree my community are all kind of boundary leveled into this single human lifespan i've watched people be born and 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 grow up and i've watched um generations ahead of me begin to die out my generation is about midway we've got several decades before we begin to die. So I haven't seen personally a complete lifespan because I'm in the middle of it. But, um, but I, I, you know, looking around me, I can piece together what a lifespan looks like. And it looks like be about 80 to 100 years. And it has, um, within the dynamic I've got, certain experiences. And it is able to see and view the world in, in, w- within that timeline of perspective. And so when we look at our privilege within the lifespan of, our, of, of, of this human lifespan, um, there's all kinds of things that we might not have context for, which means we might be blind to certain privileges that we have that we don't realize we have. But when we start to take a look at broader timelines, when we study history, when we study it on our own, not, not what we learned in community college or, or, or high school, but when we study it on our own, what we realize is that on this national community, national and broader culture level of the hierarchy of lenses, is that there is, um, there is this timeline of elements that are influencing our paradigm and our perspective to be able to see privilege that is beyond our comprehension if we don't work to try and comprehend it, which is what study does. So when we study history, and when we study in particular Western civilized history, colonized history, because that's what Western civilized history it is, it is Western civilized across the globe because Europeans spread out across that globe in an effort in order to colonize territories and areas and peoples that were beyond their um, lands of origin 
in order to secure power and privilege for themselves. And the history makes no mistake about it. Right? Like, like uh, the concept of race in itself. So, you know, we start hitting the, the, the 12th century in Europe. And this, the, the rise of these enlightened um, ideas begins to, begins to kind of push the control and power dynamic of the church out of the way. It begins to create an imbalance. And the church certainly pushes back. And, um, and in, at the same time, you know, in 1436, the printing press um, is invented. So now these ideas can be disseminated and read by many. Um, the Gutenberg Bible is the first thing that's printed in and, and disseminated. The rise of university systems kind of come up. Uh, the scientific method emerges. Um, we get Leonid's um, classification of the species, which is working to subdivide all of flora and fauna in the world and, and in the known you know, world in order to put it into a, uh, an understandable human classification. And these ideas um, give rise to um, this sense of superiority. And so as we look at the human species around the world as we're moving out beyond our borders, we, um, we're, we start to put them into classification. So we move beyond Leonid's classification, uh, which stops at species, and we create something called race. And it takes actually a couple hundred years for this idea to kind of take shape. And the idea is, is that based off of the phenotype of others, so that is the physical features, hair, bone structure, skin, skin color, uh, that we can determine that, 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 that there is a subdivision under species in which, uh, in which human beings can be divided. And this subdivision, according to race doctrine of the time, was theorized that, um, that if you were a, um, west of the Caucasus Mountains, Caucasian, uh, you, you had a certain propensity and ability for enlightened ideals, for, um, you know, for um, higher levels of being and thinking. Well, this is where a superiority doctrine kind of begins to emerge because it mixes in, right? These enlightened ideals mixes in with, with centuries of trauma in Europe in which ethnic cleansing and, um, and Roman colonization and uh, an attempt in order to control and seize power from other European groups. Um, so atrocities have been caused. These ideas, the, the, these harmful um, ideas of um, I'm superior, such as the Spanish Inquisition, all kind of culminate into this superior doctrine about ethnic and idealized religious belief system superiority and it mixes with this new enlightened scientific uh, ideology and suddenly you get this notion of race and we would spend six centuries trying to prove it through things like eugenics um, and then in the 1990s we began to map the human genome and we just finished it three months ago it took that long we just completely mapped the human genome three months ago. And what did we discover? The human species is 99.99998% alike. There is no variation that scientifically uh, makes race a reality. It's a fiction. It's a social construct. It is not a scientific construct it doesn't hold up at all and so when we kind of flat fast forward quite a ways to 1609 virginia colony starts out as a private endeavor that fails the crown takes it over and um, on the you know, in Jamestown, Virginia, there is uh, a, which is a little spit of land off of the mainland. 
Um, it's attached, but but it's you know not embedded in the mainland. The British decide that they're going to start a a crown-backed corporate endeavor. It's made up of three people, three types of people. The first is English nobles, and they're they're the they 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 run things. They're um, they're the aristocrat class. The second is landowners. So these are individuals who either were able to come over with some money, purchase land, and begin working it. And these landowners not just owned tobacco farms, which was the number one cash crop, but there were textiles and mills and that sort of thing. And then the third class was an indentured servitude class. And this rises up because serfdom in Europe begins to go away. And there's a mass influx of people into the cities because the landowners have decided, and this is directly related to colonization, because all over the world, grains and goods are being shipped back to Europe from the colonized world. And so there's no need to have serfs on your land. So you close up shop and you turn your land into um, beautiful uh, landscaped um, you know, heritage land and you kick out all the serfs who are working it for generations and they have to go somewhere. So they go to the cities and the cities are becoming extraordinarily crowded in 17th century Europe, 16, you know, 1600. So they start shipping them over to the colonies. And for a seven year indentured servitude contract, you would go to the colony and you would work, and you would work seven days a week. Uh, you would get Sunday off. You'd get Sunday off. But you would work long hours from sunset to sunrise. Uh, sorry, sunrise to sunset. And, um, and then you'd win your freedom. And with what little money you were able to save, you could buy land, and you could become part of the landowning class. 1619... A, Dutch, uh, a ship under Dutch registry called the White Lion shows up on Jamestown Colony with, uh, with about 20 African peoples that have been taken from a Portuguese uh, slave ship. And, um, and they are brought into the community under this indentured servitude contract. So you've got white English uh, people and you've got uh, black African peoples who are now working in this indentured servitude class. And for roughly about 50 years, it works for the most part. The colony begins to thrive, and those that win their freedom often will buy land, and they will intermarry. And this, uh, this inter-ethnic uh, community begins to kind of come up. But the aristocrat class, the noble class, the ones that were ruling, they didn't like it. And so small little laws began to be put on the books. They used the word white for the first time ever. And they were laws about marriage. You know, you, you, you couldn't marry an enslaved person. A white woman couldn't, you know. And, and uh, for the most part, they were... a for, for in the context of the time, somewhat innocuous, but they were leading to something far worse. Indentured servitude was no cakewalk. It was difficult. And by six, the, you know, 1678, the land of the Virginia colony that, that, that the colony was on was kind of being all worked. There wasn't any land left. And so those that were in the indentured servitude class were looking out at their future and they were saying, we're going to get screwed here. And so um, Bacon's Rebellion happens. And a man named Bacon rises up and, uh, and, and the working class, the indentured servitude class made up of both, both English and African individuals, rise up in order to uh, fight for their freedom but also go out onto the mainland and wipe out a couple of small villages so they can clear the area for their own opportunity. That goes on for about 14 or 15 months. 
Uh, Bacon dies of dysentery somewhere in there, but the rebellion continues. And then the governor of the colony and his and the British troops that are sent over to put it down finally do put it down. They put down the rebellion. Sir William Blakely is the governor, begins to uh, make laws that ensure that such a thing could never happen again. And in 1681, he writes uh, with the consent of the parliament a law that ensures such a thing um, would be impossible in the future. And what he does is he says that, uh, that if you're white, you basically have the opportunity to participate in the community, to make laws, to own land, um, to, you know, to participate in society. But if you're black and you're in the, and you're in the indentured servant class, you will spend the rest of your life in perpetuity in enslavement and every generation after you will spend their lives in enslavement. And so in this, in 1681, this law is enacted that does something extraordinarily powerful. It is a legal evolution on the pseudoscientific notion of race, which has been the cause for European colonization, uh, 150 years of it in, uh, in South America, Central America, and Mexico through the Spanish, but also emerging colonies by the Dutch, the French, uh, the Portuguese, and the English under this race doctrine of that provides some semblance of superiority that 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 Europeans should have dominion over the world and this legal doctrine creates a legal evolution on race and that legal evolution establishes that if you're white you have these privileges and when the United States of America, a hundred years later, comes into being, and the first act of the of the Congress of the United States is to create the the um, uh, oh. The 1790 Naturalization Act, which is the law that determines who can become an American citizen, it specifically states any white person, any white person of sound mind can become an American citizen. So if you weren't white, you couldn't gain citizenship if you couldn't gain citizenship you couldn't participate in the society you couldn't uh you couldn't run for office you couldn't make laws you couldn't own land you couldn't you couldn't run a business you had no way to do that so um so this a hundred years later this legal concept of whiteness emerges as the law of the land in many respects in the United States. And that law is upheld in court case after court case in which it is challenged by individuals considered not white. And in fact, two cases go all the way to the Supreme Court. One with a Japanese man who had been born and raised in the United States and uh, believed that because he had been born and raised in the United States, he had the right to be considered white and should be able to own land and petitioned the court and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court of the United States said, no, you are not white. Unfortunately, white was actually ambiguous enough that it was difficult to define. It should be ambiguous to us now. But it often isn't. The second case was with a U.S. Marine. He was a Sikh man who uh, had immigrated to the United States, joined the Marines, and could not be considered a citizen even after his service. And so he petitioned the United States, and he tried something a little different. He said that because he came from the descendants of Aryans, 
which are thought to be some of the first uh, peoples that had migrated into northern Europe when the ice sheets receded 20,000 years ago, that indeed he was European and therefore he was white. And the court did not uphold that either. Because white could be defined any way that the court chose to define it at the time. It wasn't until the 1964 Civil Rights Act that the legal construct which permeated all American law was struck down, along with a number of other laws that have been risen up around it, such as Jim Crow laws. So roughly almost you know, 200 years into, um, into the creation of the United States of America, um, and if we go farther back to the Virginia colony, then we've got over 300 years of legal, uh, a direct line of, um, of legal doctrine that informs each other all the way down history to create a nation that is based off of white. And it's based off of the security and the privilege of white peoples. The land was cleared of indigenous peoples for the, uh, for the rights and the privileges of the white settlers. So, if we don't have that historical perspective, then it makes it really difficult to see the privilege or the lack thereof that we do or we don't have. If we choose not to look into it and study it for ourselves because it is beyond the simple human timeline in which we intuitively understand because we're surrounded by human timelines, we live within human timelines, then it's going to be extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult for us to understand our bias, our privilege, and the harm in which we can inflict. If we don't understand the lens that's already in us, which is that lens of nationality, that lens of larger cultural indoctrination. White privilege doesn't exist, though, right? I mean, you know, I, I grew up you know, with my mother, fairly poor. Um, you know, so, so, so how can white privilege exist? The problem with that argument, the problem with that argument of, I didn't, I didn't have privilege. I didn't have these things. I don't know what you're talking about. Is that we are using our family of origin lens or our, community of origin lens or our circle of friends lens in order to peek up at the perspective that is layers above it in the hierarchy. And we're using that lens in order to, to, um, to discern what's happening. It's the wrong lens. It's the wrong lens. White privilege does speak to personal experience to some degree. But you can't see that personal experience if you don't look at it from the larger lens above it. If you don't look at it from the lens of cultural indoctrination. Which is beyond that human timeline. Which requires study to understand. Certainly I can, I can call out some things that, you know, about, about my privilege that I know is rooted in my own phenotype. You know, my whiteness. I can see it because I married into a, a family that is brown. My mother, uh, my uh, my children are, um, you know, are, are Filipino, Chinese, uh, Hawaiian, um, Spanish, Portuguese. That's their that's their 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 ethnic background, and so you know they're 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 dark skinned. Um, they have never gotten out of a parking ticket or, or a speeding ticket, not ever. And they've had them not once. And in fact, their interactions with the institution that we call police is, um, often, especially in their youth was, um, confrontational, 
from the police officer standpoint. More often than not, they were dragged out of cars. More often than not, they were put in cuffs. Um, and they were not charged with anything. They were not taken to jail for anything. Um, these were traffic stops. I have probably gotten out of, I don't know, two dozen tickets, speeding tickets. Um, there was an occasion with my wife, which deeply upset her, where I got out of a speeding ticket twice in one day with the same officer. And I was speeding. Oh boy, was I speeding. My interactions with the institution of police is very different. At one time, I used to tell a story with youthful exuberance and, and foolish pride about how uh, I was pulled over in the middle of the night in Whatcom County, Washington, by a Snohomish County police officer who clearly had no business pulling me over um, because he was out of his jurisdiction. He clearly wasn't on duty. And um, he pulled me over because I blew by him doing 85 on my way home from work at one in the morning um, without even hesitating. And it upset him. And so he pulls me over and it's raining and um, we're on the side of the freeway and there really is no shoulder and and there's no traffic. But if there was traffic, you, you know, like it's dangerous. And he's got the light shining uh, and he's uh, he's standing uh, behind me. Um, you know, I'm sitting I'm sitting in my car. The windows rolled down. He's standing behind uh, me back by the passenger where the passenger door would be. And he's got his gun in his hand, and I can see the gun. And I put both my hands on the door, and I pull my torso out of the vehicle so that I can fully face him, and I let him have it. I told him, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Who the fuck do you think you are pulling your gun on me in the middle of the night when you've got no business being here? I don't know who you are, but you are a Snohomish County police officer, sheriff, in Whatcom County, pulling me over on the I-5. Was I right or wrong? It doesn't really matter. What matters is, is that I had the ability and the privilege to be able to say that to him without getting shot, without getting dragged out of that vehicle, without backup being called, without a bunch of things. My Boys would never, ever speak to a cop that way. Never. I saw my grandfather speak to a cop that way on more than one occasion. Didn't always work out for him. He usually got the ticket. The point is, is that I wouldn't see that lens if I didn't see, one, if my family of origin, you know, or if my family structure hadn't changed, but two, if I hadn't spent time studying and trying to see the world through that larger perspective. White privilege can't be fully understood if you don't spend time understanding the cultural indoctrination and historical ramifications. Because from your perspective, it doesn't exist. And why would it exist from your perspective? Your perspective that you are able to grasp and hold on to and have mastery over stops somewhere around community. If as an adult, you do not continue to study, to read, and to challenge yourself, to cultivate self-awareness, self-reflection, and self-regulation practices in your life then how can you possibly understand what's happening in the culture around you? I appreciate you joining me today for Seattle Not. I hope that you'll take what I've shared in consideration and I hope that perhaps it is a challenge and maybe encourages you. If you like what we do here at Plowline Productions, we really appreciate it. Uh, we have two podcasts. We have, we have the Plowline Podcast, which features these solo podcasts with me called Seattle Knot. 
And we have another podcast called The Evolution of Aloha Podcast, which features Jerry E. Balarosa Tanel, Dr. Jerry E. Balarosa Tanel, with one-on-one conversations uh, with women and their experiences. And um, it's great. It's uh, on all platforms. It's called The Evolution of Aloha Podcast, and I really think you would enjoy it. So you should check it out. It helps us a ton if you will not only subscribe to this podcast, but if you would rate it on the platform in which you are listening to. If you could give it five stars uh, and a review, that helps the algorithm see us, and we would greatly appreciate it. If you want to participate in the dialogue and the work that we're having, you can check out a couple of different places. Check out our, our business website where Jerry and I do our consulting work, which I'm very proud of. Co3consulting.net. We have three different programs that we're working with organizations to go through. The first is called the colonized, Healing the Colonized Mind, uh, a personal journey towards decolonization, where we talk about ex- some of the things that we just talked about today in this podcast. Another is whole systems leadership, which we take our master's degrees in whole systems design, and we've built a program around creating personal leadership objectives and perspectives that that allow you to see things like the hierarchy of lenses that I described. And finally, Jerry has a program called the Evolution of Aloha, which is a self-regulation program that we work with organizations and their people. We're individuals. So co3consulting.net is where you can check those things out. And if you want to contribute to the work that we're doing with these podcasts and um, the, our Medium publications, which is medium.com backslash plowline or dismantlingwhiteness.com or the evolution of aloha.com, then you can go to Patreon and you can become a member and you will gain exclusive uh, access to exclusive content that's patreon.com backslash plowline productions. Patreon.com backslash plowline productions. I sincerely appreciate you listening today and thank you for your support. <laughs>